This is um, our sixth week in a series that we are called, uh, calling Seven Stories. And uh, the reason we're calling it Seven Stories is we've been taking a look for the last several weeks at the parables of Jesus. And I've talked about this a few times, but a parable is uh, essentially this, uh, this idea of putting something that you know next to something you don't know. And that you, by comparison of the thing you know with the thing you don't know, it helps you understand the thing you don't know. That's sort of the idea. The word parable in Greek means to throw alongside of something else. And so we've been looking at these parables as Jesus has tried to, uh, to teach us about some deep spiritual truths. Um, today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. And uh, this particular parable we call the parable of the talents. And so we'll get into it in just a moment. But before we do that, um, I'm going to give you a little bit of context. Uh, I've, I've told you this before, but one of my professors in seminary used to always say context is part of text. In other words, in order to understand a particular section of Scripture, you need to understand the context around it because it really matters. And so in this case, Matthew chapter 23 and 24 are important. They bear upon the meaning of this uh, parable of the talents. And so at the end of Matthew chapter 23, we see Jesus warning the Pharisees. He says this, he says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, or that term in Greek means actors. You guys are actors, you're faking it. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. And so Jesus is warning the Pharisees about their continued self-righteousness. And he's warning them about the gravity of leading other people astray. And so this is part of the context, Matthew chapter 24 Jesus adds to this context. He says, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. This is for the people that are following Jesus. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And here's maybe the most important verse in this section. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, right? The one who endures throughout all that hardship and all that difficulty, all that temptation to fall away, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then finally, verse 31 says this, And he, that is God, will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And so Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to return, and that when he does so, he will judge all men. And so all of these uh, bits and pieces leading up to Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, give us an idea of the context. Now we're going to jump in and begin reading at verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, ability, then he went away. And so a talent, just so you know, is 75 pounds. It's a measure of weight. And it would have been in gold or it would have been in silver. It uh, was usually worth as much as 6,000 denarii, which are a day's wage. And so if a day's wage would have been $75 and there were 6,000 of those in a talent, you can do the math. And so all of a sudden, we're talking about the guy who had five talents having as much as $2 million. Usually the currency would have been silver in that day and age. The second guy would have had $800,000 uh, equivalency in, in silver. 
and then the last guy would have had four. Verse 16, he who had received the five talents went away at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, it should cause us to think for a moment, well, if he hid that money in the ground while the other guys were working with it and using it, what was he doing? Well, what he wasn't doing was he wasn't building God's kingdom. Verse 19, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And so it's clear that each of these two first people took the talents that they had been entrusted with, and they went to work efficiently and industrially, doubling what had been entrusted to them, and they were rewarded accordingly. They were praised. They were welcomed as partners. They were given more responsibility, more work to do. Verse 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your son Jesus came to reveal the truth about who you are and about who he was and about who we are and how it is that we're supposed to live life. And so, Father, I pray that, um, that we would also hear this text today and that it would be a warning for us. But I also pray that it would be an encouragement and a reminder of what it is that you've called us to do. So, Father, I pray that um, your spirit would be upon everyone in this room today in an unmistakable fashion. And, uh, Father, I pray that no one today would be able to leave this room without having had an encounter with you. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, in 1960, two men made a bet. And it was only a $50 bet, so it wasn't much. But millions of people would actually end up feeling the impact of this wager. The first man's name was Bennett Cerf. He was the founder of Random House, which is a publishing house. The second man, his name was Theo Geisel. You probably know him better as Dr. Seuss. So Cerf proposed the bet and challenged that Dr. Seuss would not be able to write an entertaining children's book using 50 different words only. So no more than 50 different words. So Dr. Seuss accepted the wager, the bet, and he ended up winning. The result was a little book called Green Eggs and Ham, right? 
since publication, it's sold more than 200 million copies, making it the most popular of Dr. Seuss's works and one of the best-selling children's books in history. By the way, I had a, a buddy that went to Oxford, and uh, while he was there, he met 15 different people from different, you know, 15 different places around the world, and he had each of them read a section of Green Eggs and Ham to display the different in ac- difference in accents. It was really actually very cool. Anyway, so anyway, if I can find that audio tape, I'll, I'll play it for you guys one day. All right, at first glance, you might think that this was just sort of a lucky break uh, by Geisel or by Dr. Seuss. Uh, a talented author plays a fun game with 50 words and ends up producing a hit, but there's actually more to the story and the lessons in it, and it can help us become more creative and help us stick to better habits over the long run. What Dr. Seuss discovered through his little bet was the power of setting constraints, in other words, of ha- having boundaries, and the power of having a very clear purpose. Constraints are not the enemy, regardless of what our culture might tell you. Every artist has a limited set of tools to work with. Every athlete has a limited set of skills to train with and rules that he's bound by. Every entrepreneur has a limited amount of resources to build with. And once you know your constraints, you can creatively figure out how to work with them. Now, many authors and artists will actually tell you that their best work, which is the ultimate reward, actually, that their best works of art are almost always the product of focus, of having a clear purpose and ruthless constraint. And the parable of the talents that we just read gives us a similar focus and a similar constraint. Let's look very quickly at what our focus should be, at least the focus that Jesus gives us. So the first point is this, is we were created to be stewards of God's creation. We were created to be stewards of God's kingdom. Listen to verses 14 through 18. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property, right? Ryan said it this morning, tithes and offerings. This is, we're just giving back to God what he's entrusted us with. Everything we have is his. Verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. We were created to be stewards of God's creation. We're called to be stewards of God's creation, his kingdom. It's very easy to interpret this parable simply in the light of the immediate context. We read that earlier, and it's important to do that. But we can also sometimes forget the larger context. And what we see in the larger context is that when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them an assignment that theologians over the years have called the cultural mandate. Genesis 1.28 is where we find God's command, his assignment, his purpose for Adam and Eve. It says this, And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. So Adam and Eve were to fill the earth, but they were to fill it as image bearers of God, bringing order to chaos. In other words, they were to reflect God's glory, and that is our calling too. There's a man named Hugh Welchel, who was the executive director for the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, and he makes this comment. He's a believer. He says this. He says uh, in his book, How Then Should We Work? He says, God creates something 
out of nothing. We see that in the creation story. God creates something out of nothing and makes us in his image so that we can make something out of something, right? Get that there? He says, essentially, God created something out of nothing. Our job is to continue to create in God's footsteps and to create something, make something out of something. Richard Pratt, Old Testament uh, theologian who did his uh, degree at Harvard, says this in his book, Designed for Dignity. The great king has summoned each of us into his throne room. Take this portion of my kingdom, he says. I'm making you my steward over your office, your workbench, your kitchen stove. Put your heart into mastering this part of my world. Get it in order. Unearth its treasures. Do all you can with it. Then everyone will see what a glorious king I am. That's why we get up every morning and go to work. We don't labor simply to survive. Insects do that. Our work is an honor, a privileged commission from our great king. God has given each of us a portion of his kingdom to explore and to develop to its fullness, right? In other words, God calls you specifically to where you are to bring order to that little piece of chaos of the world. So often, we think that we have to do something worthy of its own Netflix documentary. And we think somehow that if we don't do that, then we've failed, but I don't actually think that's true at all. I think life and our calling is much more mundane than that. I think we're all called to work the garden where God has placed us. Each of our gardens will have a relational component that needs freedom from sin, order that needs to be brought to bear upon relational chaos. Each of our gardens will have a psychological and emotional component that won't work until they're set free from the brokenness of sin and the fall. All of our gardens contain spiritual components where we're called to trust in God as our good father and Jesus as our savior, and we're to call others to do the same. Some might call that discipleship. But the key to this section is really found in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property, right? This is my father's world. I'm called to serve him with his gifts in this, his world. Nothing that we have ultimately belongs to us. Rather, everything that we've been entrusted with, our intellect, our strength, our wealth, our time, our position, our station in life, everything is to be used to glorify God and to bring flourishing to our part of his kingdom, right? I think that's one of the first things we see in this passage, that we were created and we are called to be stewards of God's creation, of his kingdom. The second thing we see in this parable is that when Jesus returns, and he will return, that we'll be judged upon our care for his creation or his kingdom. Look at verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, settled accounts with them. And so I've said this umpteen times, but Jesus talked about three things more than anything else. He talked about money, he talked about hell, but he also talked about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And we just finished talking indirectly about that in the first point, bringing everything under the rule and the reign of God. And chapters 24 and 25 have this type of kingdom service and servanthood in view. Jesus is saying, I'm going away, but I'll return and I will judge everyone according to the way that they lived their lives and loved their neighbors. Let me say that one more time. 
I'm going away, but I will return, and I will judge everyone according to the way they've lived their lives and loved their neighbors. Look at Matthew chapter 25, this parable of the sheep and, and the goats. It's right after this parable of the talents. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous unto eternal life. It's kind of terrifying. How about James chapter 2? He makes the same point. James chapter 2 says this, beginning in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now there's a very important clarification coming here. And the clarification is this, because you should be feeling uncomfortable right now, right? And if you're not, then that's a problem. You're thinking, or you should be thinking, I thought that we were saved by trusting in Jesus' perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. I thought that's what we were saved by. And you may be thinking, isn't teaching salvation by living a good life legalism, right? Isn't that something that we always hear about? Isn't that something that's always sort of, uh, you know, warned about in Scripture? And you would be absolutely right on both counts. The Bible makes it very, very clear that we are, as the Reformers taught, saved by faith alone. However, our faith should never be alone. We will be judged or evaluated based upon our lives, which should give evidence of our faith. That's what a fruitful life is. It's evidence that the faith we say we have is real. In other words, if our faith in Christ is sincere, our lives will be marked by holiness. In the case of Matthew 25, especially in the care of our fellow human beings. So we're saved by faith in Christ alone, but we are judged upon the fruit in our lives. Listen to what J.I. Packer says in Concise Theology. I'm actually going through this right now with our deacons. Christians are to be rich in good deeds. A good deed is A, one done according to the right standard. In other words, God's revealed will or his moral law. And then B, from a right motive, the love to God and others that marks the regenerate heart. In other words, guilt isn't our motivation. Trying to earn God's favor isn't our motivation. Doing it because it's our duty isn't even the right motivation. The right motivation is love of God and love of others that are evidence of a regenerate heart. And then C, with a right purpose, pleasing and glorifying God, honoring Christ, advancing his kingdom, and benefiting one's neighbor. And so we see that we're created to be stewards of God's kingdom, his creation, and that Jesus will ultimately return and he'll judge us based upon the fruit in our lives, serving and working in his kingdom. And then finally, what we see this parable teaching is that it's ultimately our perception of God, or maybe you could say our relationship to God, 
that will determine our relationship to all of life, to all of creation, and to all of his kingdom. Look at verses 24 and 25. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. A.W. Tozer uh, in Knowledge of the Holy uh, says this. He says that our idea of God corresponds as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. In other words, that our concept of God matches up as close as possible to the reality of who God is, is immensely important, he says. Compared with our actual thoughts about him, our creedal statements are of little consequence. Our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. Now, this past year, a couple buddies of mine and I in the church went through a Bible study called Battle for the Heart. And part of what that process did for me, at least, and I think for the rest of us in the group, was to separate out what we believed about God kind of up here, what we would put on the test, and what we believed about God, which is down here really in our hearts. And ultimately what we discovered is the way that we lived and prayed and related to God and related to our loved ones emanated not from our doctrinal beliefs so much about God, in other words, what we would put on a theology exam, but rather the way that we related to those people and to God, rather those actually flowed out of what was going on and what we believed about God at that deeper heart level. For example, if you have a fundamental belief that God loves you, that he's for you, and he cares for you, then you'll draw near to him. And you'll serve him willingly and joyfully and confidently because you know he loves you and he's for you. However, if you believe that God is an angry God, if he's angry with you, if you believe that he's fundamentally displeased with you and that he can't be trusted with your well-being or the well-being of those that you love, then you will run from him, right? You'll avoid him. Or best case scenario, you'll just sort of try to appease him like the older brother in the parable of the older brother and the younger brother. If you look at this last character in the parable, and if you listen to what he believes about God, you'll hear some of this. He says this, Master, I knew, I knew you to be a hard man. And the word here uh, for hard man is taken from the word parched or severe, like a field during a drought. If you've ever tried to do any farming and the ground is rock hard, that's what this man is saying. He's like, I knew you had a hard heart, all right? He says, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So he believed that God was essentially a hard man, that he had no mercy, that he was unjust, that he was unfair. So, verse 25, I was afraid because he believed that God's heart towards him was hard and unmerciful and without grace because he believed that God was untrustworthy. He was afraid of him. And so he says, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. It's almost as if he's saying, you've got what was yours. Now just leave me alone. Which, as we read at the end of this parable, is exactly what God gives him 
in the end. He gives him what he asks for. So the question is this morning, what do we do with this parable? I think there are two answers. The first is that we remember, and the second is that we receive. We remember that this parable is directed largely at the Pharisees, these people who had been entrusted with God's word and his kingdom. But this parable is directed at them. Their misconceptions about God and their misrepresentation of him, as well as their rejection of Jesus, had massive implications for them and for those that they were supposed to be leading and caring for. Though there is the very clear threat in this parable and in this series of teachings about judgment, that's definitely here, there's still an opportunity to repent, right? It's not over yet. So even though this parable is frightening and uncomfortable for us, it's still ultimately loving and merciful because it's not too late for us to repent of our slander and our libel and our misbelief towards a holy and a merciful God. It's not too late to believe that God is good, that he loves you, and that he is for you. So remember, it's not too late. So remember and receive. The second thing we're to do is to receive the Lord's Supper. You'll look around the room this morning. You'll see these tables with bread and with wine. But before we get there, I want you to hear again the words of the master to the faithful servants. I love his words to them. He says this, well done, right? Well done. My guess is that it is a deep, deep longing for most of us to actually hear that, right? From somebody, right? Maybe from our wife, maybe from our husband, maybe from our father, right? Maybe from a boyfriend, maybe from a girlfriend. We long to hear somebody say, well done. You did a great job. And what the master says in this, um, parable to these faithful servants he says well done right well done and i love that he says what he says here too he says you've been faithful over a little right just a little you've been faithful over that i will set you over much <laughs> i'll give you more to do but then he says enter into the joy of your master enter into my joy the reward for those of us who know God, who walk with him, who live our lives in service to him, who trust in him, is that we get to experience the joy and the safety of a relationship with him. And so today, that's what this Lord's Supper, that's what it, that's what it reveals. Part of what it communicates is that if you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, then you are safe, that God in this meal declares to you, those of you who trust in Christ alone for your salvation. He declares to you, well done, good and faithful servant. In this meal, he says, you are safe. There is no judgment for you because I poured out the judgment that I had upon my own son who died in your place. And so for those of us who trust in Christ alone, we get to enter into the joy of our master. We get to sit down at the family table and to eat this meal that represents forgiveness. We get to eat this meal that declares that we are righteous, not because of what we have done, but we're righteous because of our trust in Christ alone. Now, at the same time, I'll say this, is that this meal is not for those who haven't yet come to that point of trusting in Christ alone. And so for those of you who have not come to that point, I would ask that you simply sit back and that you watch as the people of God 
worship him and receive the grace that is offered in these signs and these symbols. I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to read the words of institution. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask that you sit back and take an opportunity to repent. But I'm going to ask that you also take the opportunity to let God's voice loudly declare to you that if you trust in his son and hear his words say, well done. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I do actually think it's true that all of us is looking to something in life um, to declare uh, to us well done. And Father, we, we turn to a thousand different things, uh, girlfriends and boyfriends and sports and work and um, all any number of things, Father. Um, and yet, we were designed primarily to hear you as our Father tell us well done. And Father, ultimately, that declaration of well done, we realize, comes because of a heart, a regenerate heart that you give us as we trust in your Son, Jesus, as our Savior. And so, Father, I pray that our hope um, and that our ability to come and to, to receive from this table today, that it would come from our trust in your Son, Jesus, his life, his death, and resurrection alone. And I pray that your declaration over us that we are not guilty and that we are forgiven Uh, would come from what you tell us, Father. I pray that your voice would drown out the voices of the world, that your voice would drown out the voice of Satan, and I pray that your voice would even drown out uh, our own voices as we seek to condemn ourselves. Let us trust in your son Jesus alone. In his name we pray, amen.